0: going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning, continuing to see Paul unfolding the message of the gospel in this letter. We've seen where we came from. The first three chapters again showed us our depravity, the hopeless state that mankind is in because of our sin. And because of sin, all of mankind is under the wrath of God and the condemnation of God. Those under sin are under its authority. They are enslaved to sin. Sin can bring nothing but condemnation and death. Romans 6.23 told us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those under sin earn a wage. They earn death, but eternal life in Christ is given freely by God. It is not something that is earned like death is. Being under sin, we were helpless. We were hopelessly lost. The only thing that could correct that would be God's intervention on our behalf. But we've also seen that God has provided a means of salvation. He has provided that intervention for anyone who will accept it and believe it. In chapter 5, or 6, he said, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He then said in verse 8 of that same chapter, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He has provided a means of salvation. We become justified through faith in his Son and are therefore saved from the wrath to come. That was our condemnation. The plan of God is not just to make us righteous so that we might live with him in heaven for all eternity. That's what some people think that salvation is. But it's to make us righteous in order to cause us to live a righteous, sanctified life for him. In the last two chapters that we've been studying, chapters 6 and 7, that's what we've been discussing, living a sanctified life. We are freed from sin because we've died to sin. The condition of those described in the first three chapters no longer applies to those who have believed in the gospel. Now that's what we saw in chapter 6, that we died to sin. But we didn't only die to sin, we saw in chapter 7 that we also died to the law. The Mosaic law no longer has any authority over a believer, Jew or Gentile. Verse 4 of chapter 7 said, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In spiritual baptism, we have been identified with Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We died to sin as well as to the law because we died with Christ. So in the last part of chapter 7... really from verse 7 all the way down to the end of the chapter, we looked at that struggle that people have with sin, with the law and with sin. Paul makes it clear that even though we've been freed from its power, we still live in this body of flesh and we still struggle with doing what we know to be right now. By the time we got to the end of chapter 7, we were left with a helpless feeling as we struggle with sin. Paul cried out in verse 24, a wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Is this what the saved life is? Is this all that I have to look forward to? A constant, never-ending struggle with sin, even though I have died to sin. Paul knows the answer to that. It's an answer for which he's setting us up because we'll see here as we go through chapter eight that he'll further develop the future that we have as believers. Chapter eight pulls together what we have been discussing in chapter six and seven. We have been sanctified. We've been set apart from sin's penalty. Christ paid that for us. And from its power, we are dead to sin and therefore no longer under its authority. And in chapter 8, we'll see that our future hope lies in our freedom from even its very presence when we are glorified with our Lord. And this hope comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who was given to us at the moment of our salvation, when we believed. Paul's discussion on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans has been surprisingly scant thus far. We really haven't talked about the Holy Spirit much. We might wonder, how can you have a discussion on justification and sanctification without talking about the Holy Spirit? The answer to that has to do with what we've been talking about through the letter, and I hope that you all understand this by now. Building blocks, building blocks. We have been brought along through his arguments step by step, block by block, to prepare us for discussions like this. The word for spirit, pneuma, has been used five times, only five times so far in the letter, and only three of those times are clear references to the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 4, he said, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 5, verse 5, it said, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In chapter 7, verse 6, he said, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. There's a couple other times that it's used, one in chapter 1, another one in chapter 2, which aren't as clear-cut, but in all, there are no more than five times that the word for spirit has even been used so far in the letter. Now, as we come to chapter 8, we'll see the word for spirit mentioned 21 times throughout just this chapter, with all but two of those uses clearly referring to the Holy Spirit. So as we come to chapter 8, it's apparent that the role of the Holy Spirit is going to be clearly laid out for us here. His ministry is going to be developed through this chapter, and it will bring a lot of what we've seen so far in the letter together. It will be the glue or answering some of the questions that might have come up in our minds as we've gone through Paul's building blocks to get us to this point. So we come to verse 1 in chapter 8, and we see Paul tie in What he wants to say here with what he has said previously. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you see that word therefore, and you need to find out what it's there for, right? And we see this word, and we know that it ties back to something that he said before, but what does it tie back to? Well, our first thought would be what he just finished up saying in chapter 7, but most likely that's not the immediate context, speaking of that struggle with sin that we have. Although the answer to that struggle that we have um, is seen here in this chapter. But really, he's referring back to verse 6 of chapter 7, with the distinction being released from the law and free to serve in the Spirit. Since this goes along with a theme that he'll be developing, really, in the first 13 verses of the chapter here verse 7 or I mean sorry verse 6 of chapter 7 said but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter now really you could make the case also that his thoughts here actually go back to his arguments in chapter 5 about the condemnation that the sin that the sinner is under and we will see that in just a second here but i believe that paul is is using his preceding arguments as a whole to make his next point. And the point that he's reached at the beginning of chapter 7 is that he's using it to springboard us here into this new train of thought. So really, you could say that verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7 were kind of a, a parenthetical look at this struggle that the believer has. So you could really read through verse 6 of chapter 7, then read right on into verse 1 of chapter 8 to get the idea of what Paul is conveying here. But he says there is now no condemnation. So that word for condemnation is a word that is only used three times in the New Testament. Here and twice it's used in chapter 5 of the same letter, which is what does tie this back to his concept of condemnation. If you remember back in chapter 5, we had the first Adam and the last Adam. We had that whole discussion. Adam, who brought sin into the world, and Christ, who brought life, brought a way out of the condemnation that came with sin. And we see this word used in verse 16, if you look back in chapter 5 quickly. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And then look down at verse 18. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And so you see the contrast. There was condemnation that came through Adam and through Adam's sin. But through Christ there came justification. So here, in chapter 8, he's using that same word. Now, there is no condemnation. Very emphatic in, what he, in the way he uses it here. This indicates that there's absolutely no condemnation of any kind. This is a clean slate that he's talking about. Before, we were under condemnation. Now, that condemnation has been completely wiped away, has been completely removed from us. Removed for who? Not just anyone, but for those who are in Christ Jesus, he says. Very carefully limited in who is no longer under condemnation. And really, throughout the last two chapters, we've been talking about just this, the same thing. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of what we saw in the very first part of chapter 6. Verse 3 of chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, as those who have been justified, we are in Christ through this spiritual baptism, through baptism of the Holy Spirit, his death, burial, and resurrection. We now live in Christ. We are in Christ. This was one of the main points that we talked about in chapter 6. We have been freed from slavery to sin in order to become slaves of righteousness. Free to live our lives for His glory because now we are identified with Christ in what He did on our behalf on the cross. And a part of being in Him means that our penalty has been paid in full. The condemnation, That was required of us that we were living under has now been taken care of and it's important to understand that there's only two kinds of people those who are condemned and those who have no condemnation associated with them at all there are no people who have some condemnation associated with them it's either all or nothing look with me over at john's gospel the third chapter Get your fingers ready today because we're going, to be, we're going to look at quite a few verses today, so if, if we have time. But the third chapter of John's Gospel. We're all familiar with John 3.16, but this is a part of what we're talking about here. It talks about God's wrath, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Those who believe in him shall not perish. What does that mean? It means that if you don't believe in Him, you will perish, right? You believe in Him, you won't perish, but if you don't, you're going to perish. Now look at verse 18. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who believe are not judged. Those who don't, they're already judged. They're already judged. Standing condemned before God. Skip down to verse 36, same chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes already has eternal life. Whoever doesn't won't see life, but they're under God's wrath. If you remember, clear back in the very beginning, the very opening chapter, of Romans we talked about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The issue is are you in Christ or not? Have you put your faith in the work of the Son of God for your salvation? If you have then you are not under condemnation. If you haven't then you are under condemnation. It's a black and white issue. There is no mostly good or mostly righteous or partially righteous. It's really all or nothing. That's why a concept like purgatory has no place in Christian doctrine. There is no idea in Scripture of being in Christ, but also having to work off your sins in some way. Those who are in Christ have no condemnation whatsoever. So back in Romans 8, we see the explanation of this that follows. Look at verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And he's using the word law here to refer to authority and power that is exercised in a life. The laws of our country have authority over us. They govern us. They control our conduct, right? We understand that concept of law. And we've talked about this a little bit last time. He has mostly been talking about the Mosaic law through the, through the letter, and that will come up again, but he's also using this general idea of law as well. And here he talks about the law of the spirit of life. This refers to power of the Holy Spirit that's working in the believer. He rules as a law in the life of the believer. He is now the authority in the life of the one who is in Christ. He governs our conduct. He is in charge. He's the one that directs us. And we'll see this developed as we go through the chapter, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But for now, Paul is simply introducing us to this truth. In Christ Jesus, as he talks about here, this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this draws us back to what he's talking about In verse 1, we are not under condemnation being in Christ, but we have life in Christ. Being in Christ means that we are under the law of the Spirit of life, which sets us free from the law of sin and of death. So now we see what was missing in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Our freedom from sin is here identified with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as we look back at all the references in Romans 6 and 7, where we were freed from from sin and freed from the law, and yet we had this struggle with these things. It's like if we're freed from them, why do we keep doing these things? We now see that this freedom that we have is a work of the Holy Spirit. Before, sin had authority in my life. It controlled my conduct. I have been set free from that, from its law, from its authority in my life. You know that it's not just the law of sin, but it's the law of death as well that he says here. It's the law of sin and of death. Where there is sin, there is always death. Sin and death are inseparable. We saw that back in chapter 5. Verse 12 said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We've been freed from sin and its penalty. That's what chapter 6 was all about. So now, how was this accomplished? Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. What the law could not do. Now we're back to a reference to the Mosaic law. There's no qualifier here. We're back to the law of Moses. What couldn't it do? It could not set a person free. It was weak through the flesh. Nothing, again, nothing was wrong with the law. We saw that back in chapter 7. There wasn't a problem with the law. The law wasn't sinful. It was holy and righteous and good. The problem was with the person who was under the law. The flesh of that person was weak. They could not keep the standard of the law and the commands of the law. You might say that the law commanded me, but it never empowered me. There was no mechanism in it for you to be able to keep the law. So the command was perfect, but the flesh of the one commanded, that was where the weakness was, what was inadequate. So a person was enslaved to sin in bondage to sin and couldn't keep God's perfectly righteous standard in their life. Now, does that mean that the command to keep it was invalid? Not at all. The command is good. In order for a person to be able to measure up to God's righteousness, they would have had to have kept the law perfectly. Under the law, if you wanted to be perfect, you had to be able to keep God's perfect law. Mankind is unable to be perfect, and he was unable to keep God's perfect law. Again, the law was never a means of salvation. But that is precisely the point. We are depraved. We cannot measure up to God's standard of righteousness. And that's what the law revealed to us, what it showed us. The law couldn't do it, so it says God did it. Salvation is God's work. What did the law, he did what the law couldn't do. He had to intervene on our behalf. That's what we saw starting in chapter three, God sending his son. He intervened. God said, this is the standard that you must meet. This is the, the, the measuring stick. Remember we've talked about the, the yardstick, the ruler. This is the perfect standard. That's what the law was. But people could not meet that standard. All they could do with that standard was say that I didn't measure up again. I didn't measure up again. And again, you ask yourself, is that unfair? No, because he then did that for us. He met the righteous standard for us. How did he do it? it says that he's send, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. He sent his own son. Stress here is on own son, the unique son that partakes of his very essence and his very being. This is his only begotten son, the totally unique son. This is the price of the salvation that God has secured for us. God made a personal sacrifice for us by sending his own son. And when he sent his son, his son came, it says, in the likeness of, Of sinful flesh, and that's a very important and very precise statement that Paul is using here. He doesn't say that he was sent in sinful flesh. He didn't have a fallen sinful nature. He wasn't sinful in any way himself. It also doesn't says that he was sent in the likeness of flesh. Some would say that Christ well, he was he was good, so he couldn't have been fully human, so he must have only been spirit. But that's not the case either. He had a physical body, and we'll take a look at that here in just a minute. Jesus Christ came to earth fully man and fully God, in flesh, but it was not sinful flesh. It was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll see a few verses of this, and we'll see this laid out for us here. Hebrews chapter 2, we look down at verse 14. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In order for him to pay the penalty that our sins owed, he had to do what? He had to die. In order for him to die, he had to be flesh and blood. And what did that do? Verse 15, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus partook of the same, became a physical human being. He was flesh and blood. He was not sinful, but he was flesh and blood so that he could free those who were enslaved to sin that's you and i that's us another passage look over in second corinthians chapter 5 with me here we see where the sin came in okay he wasn't sinful but where did sin come in how could he die for sin how could he take care of our sin without being sinful himself if you look at second corinthians chapter 5 look at verse 21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our Behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him to be sin on our behalf. He was without sin, but he had the likeness of sinful flesh. The only sin that was associated with Jesus Christ was our sin. He had no sin of his own. You don't have to turn there, but the writer of Hebrews also makes mention of that in chapter 7 verses 26 and 27, where it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He was perfect. He was separated from sinners. He was the only man that could ever live up to God's perfect standard without blemish. He had no sins of his own to take care of before taking care of our sins. That's what the priests had to do, right? They had to offer their own sacrifice for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Christ didn't have to do that. Therefore, back in Romans, Christ was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh as flesh and blood, but without a sin nature. Started out at the same point as Adam, without sin, but he never gave into temptation like Adam did. Now, some translations say, next, as an offering for sin. But really, the best way to read this is simply for sin. If you notice, as an offering is in italics there. He sent his son for sin. This is why he came. He came to earth because of sin. The entire reason he came was to take care of the issue of sin because sin is what had to be dealt with. Most people don't grasp this. When they look at Jesus' life and they look at Jesus coming, coming, they say, oh, he came to start healing ministries or he came to tell us all about how to be good. How to act morally. No. He came for sin. He had to make a sacrifice for sin. What was the problem in the Garden of Eden? Sin. What keeps us from a personal relationship with God? Sin. What is, the, is it that mankind is enslaved to? Sin. What is it that we needed to die to? Sin. What did God send His Son for? Sin. To deal with sin sin okay so being sent what did he do he condemned sin in the flesh there's two possibilities for what this phrase here says the first possibility is that it says he condemned sin in the flesh he condemned sin in the flesh in other words the sin that is in my body has now been condemned Now, that is true. It has been condemned. I have been freed from its power. That's what we saw back in Romans chapter 6. But it could also mean, and I would say it fits the context better, that he condemned in the flesh sin, or he condemned sin in the flesh. So, in other words, meaning that having come as a man in the flesh, he came to condemn sin. And it's that second rendering that I think is what Paul is conveying here. He was sent in a physical body to condemn sin. In his flesh, he could provide the sacrifice, being a man himself. And we already saw some of that back in Hebrews chapter 2, another couple of places that we see that. Hebrews 10, verses 4 and 5 say, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, he comes into the world, or when he comes into the world, he says, sorry, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The only way that it could be done was by God becoming a man in a prepared body for his son. It was a man's death that was owed, and therefore he had to become a man in order to condemn the sin of mankind. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. He bore our sins in His body so that we might be free from sin and alive to righteousness. He paid the penalty in His body, a a penalty that was meant for our bodies He paid it in his own. He bore the full brunt of the wrath of God by becoming sin on our behalf and dying for our sins. This is what was required, what the law couldn't do and what we couldn't do by ourselves. Only the Almighty God could intervene by sending his own Son to accomplish this on our behalf. Now, why did he do this? Look at verse 4 so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This was God's purpose, to fulfill the requirement of the law in us. What was the requirement of the law? We've talked about it many times. Righteousness was the requirement of the law. That's what the law required, righteousness. A righteousness that nobody could match up to. So what did He fulfill in us? Righteousness. What did we just see in 2 Corinthians 5.21? Where it said, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The purpose statement of the book of Romans way back in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In fact, the word for requirement in this verse is a form of the word for righteousness. You could really say it's the righteous requirement of the law. It's important to note, God did not lower his standard for us. He met the standard for us. He reached down and brought us up to the standard. It was fulfilled in us. We didn't fulfill it. It was fulfilled in us. How did this occur? What have we seen before? We are in Christ. And Christ fulfilled it. Furthermore, the Spirit of Him who fulfilled it is in us. This is accomplished, again, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have been incorporated into Christ, baptized by the Spirit into all that He is. And therefore, what the law always required was fulfilled in us. What does it say at the end of verse 4? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Being incorporated into Christ, being indwelt by the Spirit, we do not walk according to the flesh. Walk according to the authority of sin, the authority of death. This is not something that characterizes the believer. Instead, a believer walks according to The Spirit, not according to the flesh. This is the pattern of our lives as Christians. Now, we've talked about a lot in the last few weeks about the struggle that occurs in the life of the believer, the struggle with sin. But keep in mind, the believer wins the struggle with sin much more than he loses it. The loss in the fight is the exception rather than the rule in the life of one who's a believer. The overall pattern of the life of the believer is to walk according to the Spirit with a failure from time to time being an out-of-character exception in our lives. We've mentioned several times the struggle that Paul had uh, that he presents in chapter 7. It's not a license to keep sinning. Why? Because the believer hates when he sins and does whatever he can to keep himself from sin. This is a result of the power and influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Salvation includes our sanctification. It includes us walking a certain way, behaving a certain way, living a certain way, according to the Spirit of God. Now that we are under the authority of the Spirit, we live a different way than we did before. We live according to the righteous standards of God. Isn't that what we saw before? Under the law, a person was required to keep to God's standards on their own, and they couldn't do it. So God sent His Son for us and provided our justification, right? We've talked about justification. What does justification mean? It means to be declared righteous. He justified us based on our relationship with His Son. We were declared to be righteous because we now are in Christ and identified with Him. And now that we have been justified, we live a new life, one that is lived in Christ, so that we can live up to God's standard of righteousness every day through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit produces in us a different life, a different way of living. He enables us to live out our sanctified life. So that we are not simply set apart positionally, but we are set apart practically, practically. We live it out. This is now how we walk. Now, coming to verse 5, I'm trying to get through verse 8. We'll see how far we get. Coming to verse 5, that's really what he starts to look at here. We see Paul give the details on the difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit, living according to the flesh or living according to the Spirit. One is a believer, the other is not. And we'll see that in this next set of verses. So look with me at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So he starts off with the word for, connects this back to what uh, he was saying in the previous verse. Those who are walking, now he develops what is meant by that. How are these two different groups of people, how are their lives different? Why can't the believer walk according to the flesh? This is what he develops. According to the flesh, under the control of, he sets his mind on the things of the flesh. This is where the focus of his mind is. This is where he fixes his attention on things of the flesh. This is a worldly-minded person with his mind focused on the things around him, the world and the things that are here on earth. This is the state that we see that's so prevalent in the world today, where it has become a virtue to focus first on yourself, on your possessions, on your status, right? I mean, that's... That's what everybody says. Focus on yourself first. Self-care, right? Take care of yourself first. If it feels good, do it. Just do it. Because you're worth it. Have it your way. Live life on your own terms, right? All these phrases that we hear the world inundating us with. It appeals to a me-first worldly mentality. And often believers get sucked into this as well, right? We, we hear all these things all the time and we get sucked into it. How many Times a day do we get upset or frustrated when somebody wrongs us in some way. Nobody made a fresh pot of coffee. Nobody, somebody left just a little bit of cereal in the end of the box. Why did they do that? Why do I get frustrated over dumb things like that? Are all these things worth getting upset over? No, but we've been inundated with the whole me first philosophy and we buy into it without thinking. I've been inconvenienced. That shouldn't happen to me. Focusing on yourself, on things of the flesh, that's something that characterizes one who is under the authority of the flesh. When you are focused on the flesh, you are not focused on the things of God. And that's what Paul's leading to here. Chapter 1, we saw how far man takes his focus on the flesh and his disobedience to God. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, if you want to turn there, I'll just read through some of these verses. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What does the unbeliever do? He refuses to honor God. They think that they are being wise when in reality they're being fools. Instead of giving glory to God, they give glory to man, to animals, to the creation rather than the creator. They would rather follow anything else instead of acknowledging God. Chapter 1, he went on to talk about their indulgences and the perversions of every kind, showing once again how far removed they are from anything that God intended and then down in verse 28, he said, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. All of these things are what someone who is in the flesh is characterized by. Not all of them all at once, but you can take this list and you apply this to those that are in the flesh. Verse 32 then goes on to say, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Not only do these things characterize them, but they approve of everyone else that's doing these things as well. Notice in the list, there are many things that we would agree are terribly wicked. But then there's some others that we look at and we think, eh, that's minor. Arrogant, boastful. We're supposed to be proud today, right? That's another thing that the world inundates us with. No, these are all things that Paul said, this is what the unbelievers do. Those who are under condemnation do. What characterizes them, not the believer? Keep in mind, in Romans chapter 8, we're not talking about two different kinds of believers. The fleshly or carnal believer and a mature believer. No, he's talking about believers and unbelievers. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 5. We've made mention of this passage before. Because there's parallel here. And Paul is talking really about the same thing. He's talking about walking by the Spirit and not walking according to the flesh. We'll look at Galatians 5, verse 16. "'But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please.'" So here we have the flesh and the Spirit. We talked about this in the last chapter because we are still of flesh. We still have that same sin nature of flesh, but we are not in the flesh any longer. That carries with it that connotation of being under its authority. How do we know that? Because of what he goes on to say, look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. He's not saying that this is a complete list. Just like the list that we looked at in Romans chapter 1, that wasn't complete either. But it's things like these, these sinful things, that are what characterize, that are the deeds of, Of the flesh. But look what he goes on to say then after that. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? We know what that means. They aren't saved, they won't be in the kingdom. People whose lives are characterized by these things are not saved. If these things characterize you, if they are a regular part of your life, guess what? You are in the flesh. These are what characterize mankind's depraved, fallen nature. Look at the list. Again, most of them we heartily agree with, but then others make us a little uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, that one, maybe. Those that are characterized by these things and things like these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, they are not losing their salvation. We're not talking about losing your salvation. No, they're showing that they were never saved in the first place, that they were never justified. Because for anyone who has been justified, what's true? Look back in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is now no condemnation. So for the unbeliever, once again, being enslaved to sin and righteousness, they carry out the desires of the flesh. That is the pattern of their life. So leave your finger in Galatians chapter 5. We'll be back here in just a minute. But look back in, in verse 5 of Romans 8. And here we see the contrast between those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, he says. What about those who live according to the Spirit? Where does their mind go? Their mind is focused elsewhere. Not on this world, but on the things of God. Paul will exhort the Philippians in Philippians 4.8 and say, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. As a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where my mind should be focused, should dwell on the things of God, not on the things of this world, of the flesh. We've talked about this all throughout the last couple of lessons. When I believed, I was justified. There was a change in me, a spiritual change, a change in my heart, a change in my mind. And that change will manifest itself in what I do and now what I want to do. When I was in the flesh, I focused on worldly, fleshly things. But now, as one who is in the Spirit and in Christ, my mind is set away from those things. And it focuses on these things, the things of the Spirit. And now, because of my focus, my life is different. There is a change in life in the one who believes in Jesus Christ. What characterizes my life now? What things are true of my life now? Back in Galatians 5, if you kept your finger there. Even if you didn't, you can flip back there. Look down in verse 22. Here's the contrast. Here is what is produced in the Spirit-filled life. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. This is our new list, the things that characterize us now, the things that are manifested in the life of the believer we need to ask ourselves, where do we find our mind focused? Is it on the things of the world or is it on the things of God? What types of things are manifesting themselves in my life? Does my life look more like the list that are the deeds of the flesh or of the fruits of the Spirit? It's really, again, a black and white distinction. You are either in the flesh and focused on the flesh or in the Spirit and focused on the spirit he goes on in verse 6 back in chapter 8 we see that both options have a specific outcome or consequence for the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace the mindset on the flesh is death it doesn't lead to death but it is death that's not what he's he's saying he's saying it is death it is equivalent to death those living in the flesh are not just destined for death, they're already dead. Ephesians 2.1 And you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. Before salvation, what were we? Spiritually dead. Those whose minds are set on the flesh, are in the flesh, are spiritually dead. We've seen this before in Romans. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Right? Romans 79 Uh, through 11, he says, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Because of what? Because of sin. The flaw of my unrighteousness was revealed, and I found that I was dead, because I could not keep the requirements of the law, Paul says. Verse 10, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Because of sin, mankind is spiritually dead to God, unable to respond to Him. The revelation of God's righteous standard killed us because we came face to face with our sin. Remember what we said back up in verse 2, where there is sin, there is death, they are inseparable. Therefore, someone whose mind is set on the flesh is not simply destined for death someday, they're already dead, they're spiritually dead. But the contrast, it says, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. The believer, one who has his mind set right, is equivalent of life and peace. When we come to know Him as our Lord and Savior, we became alive. We have new life in Christ. Right? I read the first part of uh, Romans 6.23 before, but the wages of sin is death. The second half, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been transformed from death into life to live with Him. Ephesians 2, I mentioned verse 1 before. Verse 5 of Ephesians 2, he says, But God, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We now have life. Again, it isn't something that we will have one day. We have life now. Our eternal life has already started. We now live for Him today, and we will live with Him for all eternity. The mindset on the Spirit is life. He also says it's peace, right? It's life and peace. We now live in a relationship of peace with God. We saw that back in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The enmity that we had with God is over because of our justified relationship that we now have with Him. We now find ourselves on God's side, at peace with Him, not against Him. And so the results of where your mind is set, it's, if it's on the flesh, the result is death, now and in the future. But on the Spirit, you have life, and that is present now and continues for all eternity. And you have peace brought about through your harmonious relationship with God, through the gospel. So in verse 7, he continues on. I think we'll make it. We'll see. Verse 7, he continues on with this explanation. He says, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. He gives more explanation to the mind set on the flesh. There is an active hatred and hostility towards God from the mind set on the flesh. This is true of everyone who's lost in their sins. There is no peace. There's only enmity with God. You see, once again, this is not describing a believer. This isn't someone who has been saved. This is an unbeliever who's in view here. That is what he's talking about. Colossians chapter 1, I'll just read it for time. He says this as well. He says in Colossians 121, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, right? That's what we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. And that's what we're seeing here in Romans 8. But in verse 22, he presents a contrast. He says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We already talked about this as well. He reconciled us, brought us into that peaceful relationship with God through His own fleshly body and died to bring us before Him holy and blameless. That is now what we are. This is what we're talking about in Romans 8. We don't live like we used to. We don't continue in sin any longer. That's what we talked about back in chapter 6. May it never be. Absolutely not. That's not how we live. We now live holy and blameless lives. And this is how we were. We were God's enemies. We weren't indifferent to him. We weren't neutral. We were his enemies. And that's how the world is today. And that explains the hostility. We see it all the time, right? You you bring up God in conversations. You bring up God as the reason for, or or sin as the reason for why things are so bad in the world. And say, oh, because, because this is God's standard. And people get angry with you, right? Because they have that hostility about God. They're hostile. They're enemies. It says the mindset on the flesh, it does not subject itself to the law of God. The fleshly mind doesn't submit itself to God's authority. We're back to that general reference to law here again, same as we had back in verse 2. The word for subject is a word that means to place under the authority. Usually it's used in a military reference, as in troops subjecting themselves to their commander. You try to tell someone today that they shouldn't do something because God doesn't want you to, that it's an affront to God. And it seems like they just want to do it more now. Well, I'm just going to throw it in your face then. You tell me it's because God doesn't want me to do it. I'm going to throw it back in your face because I'm not going to listen to this so-called God of yours. Many people, possibly all, reject the gospel because they either don't believe what God says about their sin or they refuse to submit to God as the authority in their life. That's what a person has to do to accept the gospel. To accept. They need to accept what God says about sin and they need to accept their inability to live up to His standards and about how they must come to Him in submission and give their lives over to Him. And they refuse to do that the flesh or sin-controlled mind of the unbeliever will not subject itself to God. And he says here that it is not even able to do so. With this one phrase, the chasm between believer and unbeliever grows even wider. The word able here is the word for power. The unbeliever, one whose mind is set on the flesh, is powerless to subject himself to God. And he is unable to do so. It's not just that he won't do it, he can't do it. This is why it's an exercise in futility when we try to get unbelievers to follow the Word of God. When we try to get them to change their actions by showing them a few verses in the Bible, we think they won't accept the gospel, but I'll at least try to get them to be a moral person. We do this on a personal level and we do it on a public level as well. We talk to people and try to explain to them why they must follow the Bible or we fight to get a copy of the Ten Commandments put in a courthouse or in a school because we think that that will somehow influence people to live a moral life. The problem is that's not doing them any good. They are unable to subject themselves to the law of God. In fact, by doing that, what we're really doing is deceiving them because we make them think, that if they live a life or if they match up their life to to try to have some type of moral picture of it or wrap themselves in morality, that it's benefiting them someday. It's not. In reality, all that does is give them false hope in what they're doing and gives them some kind of work to hold on to. Verse 8, we'll look at verse 8. Last verse, short verse. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. End result of having a mindset on the flesh, they cannot please God. Ponder that for a minute. Think about that statement for a second. An unbeliever never does anything that is pleasing to the Almighty God. Never. He is enslaved to sin, he is hostile to God, he is unable to subject himself to God, and he cannot do anything that pleases God you realize how hopeless that is. You look at people that are out there doing good deeds in the world, right? You always point to Mother Teresa. I know Mother Teresa died a while back, but you point to someone like Mother Teresa, right? And all the work that that she did, you think, surely that work was pleasing to God. Well, what did Mother Teresa believe? Did she believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone? With no works of any kind? If she didn't, then nothing she did was pleasing to God. What about all those people that attend pro-life rallies, March for Life people, thousands of people in attendance, without salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Those things don't please God. Solomon, the book of Proverbs, even says, Psalm, Proverbs 28:9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He who fails to listen and heed the word of God, even his prayers are an abomination to God. It's sad to think about, but many people are fooling themselves. They try to please God. They would claim that they're trying to please God. And in a sense, they might even think that they are, but they try to please him on their own terms, not his terms. And that is not pleasing to God. We're over time, so we'll just close there. I had a few closing words, but we'll just end in prayer.